Hello and welcome back to another episode of Ideas Worth Trying. It's Haile Hiram here. And on today's episode, I wanted to talk about the book I bought or read last over the last uh, six months. It's called Oneness vs. the 1%, Shattering the Illusions, Seeding Freedom by Vandana Shiva. Oh, it's a little bit of a book review, um, just mainly to get you thinking about society and I guess your contributions to it and how you could reduce it. But it's a very good book because it confirms some of my own experiences over the last 10 years living here in Germany. So I've worked for major corporations. I've also been a, a language trainer and I've had a lot of interactions with different people, different cultures, and they've also had different experiences. So this kind of confirms this, the way society is going I think we, we all get to try and choose which direction we want to go in society. So that's why I wanted to talk about the book, Oneness vs. the 1%. You can also check out some YouTube um, videos or there's a lot of blog posts at the moment. So I'm interested in this area because I'm trying to improve my own food production at home, experiment a little bit, also inside. I'm trying to do this with uh, my family, young family. So this is uh, also interesting. And also I'm int- uh, working in a cooperative here in Germany. So it's an um, interesting area and it's an area that we should all pay a bit more attention to. So anyway, I just highlighted a few pages. I'll quickly try and go through it. So anyway, a little bit about the author. So Vandana Shiva. So she's uh, pretty well renowned around the world as an environmental thinker and activist. She's the leader of the International Forum on Globalization and of the slow food movement. She's also direct director of Navdaya, the research foundation of for science and technology and ecology, and a tireless crusader for farmers, peasants, and women's rights. She's the author and editor of uh, a few books. Uh, some of them uh, can just list here. Making Peace with the Earth, Soil, Not Oil, Globalizations, New Wars, Seed Sovereignty, Food Security, Women in the Vanguard, and who really feeds the world. And her latest book is Oneness vs. 1%. So that's one I'll just quickly have a look through now. It's only got four chapters. So chapter one is 1% vs. 1 Earth, 1 Humanity. Chapter two is The Money Machine of the 1%. Chapter three is technology ma- The Technology Machine of the 1%. And chapter four is How the 1% Subverts Democracy. Maybe I just might read a few pages from the preface and then we'll go through, I'll just highlight a few different sections, which, I don't know, maybe that inspires you to look a little bit more deeper into uh, the topic and maybe watch uh, a video or have a little look for Vandana Shiva on the internet. So what is it to live, to be alive? What is it to live well, to be well? What is knowledge? What is intelligence? What is ecology? What is economy? What is freedom? What is democracy? What is our future? So we are compelled to return to these basic questions in our times, times of the possible extension of our species as the current dominant model of knowledge, of wealth creation, and of representative democracy violates planetary boundaries, the rights of the diverse species that share our planet, as well as the human rights and freedoms of most people. 
These are times when 1% control the wealth and power to destroy our planet and our common lives with no responsibility or accountability for their actions because they have found clever ways to create illusions of the separation of humans from the earth and of the 1% from the rest of society. As if we shared no common wealth and no common future. Being well and the experience of well-being are timeless, off the clock. Wealth means a state of well-being. The market has come between us and our well-being, severing us from our potential and needs. The market has also allowed its own consolidation, accompanied by the consolidation of global power. In 2010, 388 billionaires controlled as much wealth as the bottom half of the humanity. This number came down to 177 in 2011. In 2012, 159. In 2013, 92. In 2014, 80. In 2016, 62. And in 2017, it was just eight. So in 2018, during the global pandemic crisis, or global economic crash, when people lost their homes and jobs, billionaires consolidated their ownership of industry across the world. Stock prices had bottomed out, and the wealthiest billionaires bought out the economy bottom dollar prices. It was too convenient to be a matter of chance. This was the deployment of the money machine. The money machine is programmed to bulldoze, destroy, aggregate and accumulate, externalize and ex excavate. Like the cancer cell which does not know when to stop growing, convergences, mergers, concentration are the only logic the money machine understands. And just as the cancer cell ends up destroying the host organism, the money machine too will destroy the planet and our societies from which, we which it draws its support. We must reclaim our, int our intelligence and creativity to resist the money machine and create non-violent alternatives. We must reclaim the market from the money machine and our lives from billionaire dictators. We must reclaim our real freedoms and not, the seduced, and not be seduced by the false freedoms of free trade corporate rule, algorithm-run democracy and consumerism. We must stand firm and reclaim the meaning of wealth and the conditions for being well. Will the end game for humanity be, be the domination of the one power of big money or will we, in our oneness, as one earth community, one human community, shut down the operating system of domination and extermination to allow our potential and self-organization and creativity to seed another future. The diversity of cultures and languages and with them our imagination is being lost. Social violence, disintegration have become the norm everywhere as economic polarization and inequalities deepen. Every society is facing a crisis of democracy as big money hijacks the process of representative democracy and elections are used to divide people through hate and fear. They divert the public consciousness from the real roots of their insecurities, thus preventing them from organizing and rising to protect the planet, to build their societies and to reclaim their economies and democracies. Humanity stands at a precipice. There is an uncertainty regarding our potential for future evolution. Ecologically, the uncertainty arises 
because every aspect of the dominant model of thinking and living is destroying the Earth's capacity to support our lives. The erosion and extinction of our species and destruction of soils and water and climate chaos are wreaking havoc on the conditions necessary to continue as members of the Earth community. The extractive model of the economic development and growth of corporate control and the greed economy are not just destroying nature, they are destroying our humanity, which is the human capacity for solidarity, compassion and the ability to take care of each other. Although the illusions and abstractions that the powerful have created and imposed on the rest of humanity, especially over the last two decades, of the rise of the fossil fuel-based industrialization and mechanical reductionist mind, we are losing our capacity to not just sustain life ecologically, but also to sustain life socially as a community. Uprooting, dispossession and creation of refugees is the shadow of the illusionary model of limited, limitless growth on a planet with ecological limits as well as the exercise of limitless power by the powerful through constructed grids of categories and narratives. Then let's jump to a quote by Cecil Rhodes, who colonized Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia. He stated frankly, we must find new lands from which we can easily obtain raw materials and at the same time exploit the cheap slave labor that is available from the natives of the colonies. The colonies would also provide a dumping ground for the surplus goods produced in our factories. So this is what the economy of the 1% is modelled on. The tools of extraction and colonies might change, but the methods and colonisation remain unchanged. Grab and steal what belongs to others, make it your own property, collect rents from the original owners and convert the displaced into cheap slave labour to provide raw material as well as to become the market for your industrial products. So I think this uh, continues silently today. Now has always been our time. This is the resurgence of the real. The real is our oneness and non-separability. The real is our lived and living intelligence. The real is our self-organization, our creativity, our freedom. The real is our potential to sow the seeds of diversity, of hope, of compassion, interconnectedness and our common future. Well, that was a nice, powerful introduction, so I was very excited to uh, keep turning the pages. According to the poet and philosopher Rabindranath Tagore, the distinctiveness of Indian culture is in having defined life in the forest as the highest form of cultural evolution. In his essay, Tapavan, he writes, Contemporary Western civilization is built of brick and wood. It is rooted in the city. But Indian civilization has been dis distinctive in locating its source of regeneration, material and intellectual in the forest, not the city. India's best ideas have come where man was in communion with trees and rivers and lakes away from the crowds. The peace of the forest has helped the intellectual evolution of man. The culture of the forest has fueled the culture of Indian society. The culture that has arisen from the forest has been influenced by the diverse processes of renewal of life which are always at play in the forest. Varying from species to spe species, from season to season, in sight of sound and smell, the unifying principle of life in diversity of democratic pluralism thus became the principles of Indian civilization. 
So forests are the storehouse of biodiversity and can teach us lessons in democracy of sharing space with others while drawing sus sustenance from the common web of life. Democracy is participation, and since participation is embodied, not disembodied, participatory democracy is a lived and living democracy. We must build a movement of rec to recognize the rights of nature and Mother Earth, and the violations of these rights is ecocide. English botanist Sir Albert Howard, who came to India in 1905 to introduce Western systems of farming, instead found extremely sophisticated systems which had sustained Indian agriculture over the millennia. He decided to make the local peasants and pests his teachers on good farming practices. The Agricultural Testament was a synthesis of his learnings and is now referred to as the Bible of modern organic farming. Among the key lessons he learned were those of diversity and the law of, of return. Sustainable agriculture is based on diversity, integrating different crops, trees and animals on the farm. Diverse crops produce diverse nutrients for the soil and for animals as well as humans. The law of return is based on giving back to nature and society what we receive from them. Howard applied his scientific training to understand the ecology of the soil based on the practice of the law of return and evolved the famous method of composting known as indoor method. The loss of biodiversity in the fields and from our diet due to the spread of the green revolution and in industrial agriculture over the last 50 years is not just contributing to ecological crisis, it is also leading to a disease epidemic. Eating is an act of communication. In eating, we communicate with the earth the farmer, the chef. Our, our food communicates with the beneficial bacteria in our gut, which enables us to maintain our healthy and increase our resistance to disease. Our gut is a microbiome, which contains 100 trillion microbes and 1,000 bacterial species, with more than 7 million genes. For every human gene, there are 360 bacterial genes in our body. Only 10% of the cells in our body are human. There are 100,000 times more microbes in our gut than people on the planet. And bacteria are intelligent. James Shapiro has called bacteria sentient beings. And according to him, bacteria possesses many cognitive, computational and evolutionary capabilities. Studies show that bacteria utilize sophisticated mechanisms for intercellular communication and even have the ability to commandeer the basic cell biology of high plants and animals to meet their basic needs. This remarkable series of observations requires us to revise basic ideas about biological information processing and recognize that even the smaller cells are sentient beings. Carl Wiese called mechanistic reductionism a fundamentalist reductionism. He says, we need to distinguish what can be called empirical reductionism from fundamentalist reductionism. Empirical reductionism is in a sense methodological it is simply a, m a mode of analysis. The dissection of the biological entity or system into its constituent parts in order to better, better understand it. Empirical reductionism makes no assumptions about the fundamental nature and ultimate understanding of living things. Fundamentalist reductionism, the reductionism 
of 19th century classical physics, on the other hand, is in a sense metaphysical. It is ipso facto, a statement about the nature of the world, living systems, like all else, can be completely understood in terms of the properties of their constituent parts. Food and agriculture are areas where we are clearly the failure of the industrial agriculture models imposed by global corporations. The so-called modern food and agriculture system, based on chemicals and GMOs, may be presented as efficient and productive, but they use 10 times more energy, have already destroyed 75% of the planet's soil, water and biodiversity, and are responsible for 50% of the greenhouse gas emissions which are driving climate change. While industrial agriculture is promoted as the solution to hunger, it is responsible for 75% of all ecological and health problems prevalent at the global level. Hunger, malnutrition, obesity, diabetes, allergies, cancers, neurological disorders are intrinsic to design of a greed-driven, toxic-based food system. Colonization transforms abundance into scarcity, driven by the greed of a few. The story of the 1% is a story of greed without limits, without respect for the rights of others, without responsibility for the consequences of their actions. It is this contest between sharing and greed, between interconnectedness and privatization, between oneness and the 1% that lies at the crux of this book. In an economy dominated by the 1%, consumerism rules and the 99% are denied even the most basic sustainability rights including the rights to food, to water, and to work, and livelihoods. So Vendiviva talks a little bit personally now about her journey. While pursuing my PhD, I became involved as a volunteer in the CHIPCO movement, the non-violent, peaceful response to the large-scale deforestation that was taking place in the Galval Himalaya by peasant women from the region who came out to de in the defense of the forest. Chipko means to hug, to embrace. Women declared that they would hug the trees to protect them. Loggers would have to kill them before they felled the trees. Logging had led to landslides and floods, and to the scarcity of water, fodder, and fuel. Since women serviced these basic needs, scarcity meant longer walks for collecting water and firewood, and a heavier burden to bear. Women knew that the real value of the forest was not the timber from the dead tree, but springs and streams, food for the cattle and fuel for their health. The folk songs of that period said, These beautiful oaks and rhododendrons, they give us cool water, don't cut these trees, we have to keep them alive. It took the 1978 Atakashi disaster, which created floods all the way to Calcutta in Bengal, for the Indian government to recognize that the women were right because expenditure on flood relief far exceeded the revenues that were generating through timber. In 1988, in response to the Chipko movement, logging was banned above 1,000 kilometers in the Gaval Himalaya. Today, government policy recognizes that in the fragile Himalayas, conservation maximizes the ecological services of the forest. The women activists of the Chipko became my professors in biodiversity and ecology. I've always said that I received my one PhD in the fun, uh, foundations of quantum theory from the University of Western Notoria in Canada, and the second one on ecology from the forests of the Himalaya and women of the Chipko movement. Both taught me about interconnectedness and non-separability. 
The women of Chipko taught me about the relationship between forest, fuel, and uh, soil, and water, and women's sustenance uh, economies. Quantum theory taught me the four principles that have guided my thinking and my life's work. Everything is interconnected. Everything is potential. Everything is indeterminate. There is no excluded middle. We are interbeings. The quantum world is not made up of fixed particles, but of potential. A quantum can be a wave or a particle. It is indeterminate, therefore uncertain. It is non-separable, non-local. Therefore, action at a distance becomes possible. And contrary to the me mechanistic ideal of nature-human separation, the observer creates the observed. An interactive, interrelated world becomes possible. While the me mechanical view forms the basis of mastery and conquest over nature, and hence is the root of ecological crisis, quantum and ecological paradigms have the same underlying understanding of an interconnected universe. From the trees we learn unconditional love and unconditional giving. From the dry leaves that fall we learn about the cycle of life, the law of return, as leaves become humus and soil protecting the earth, recycling nutrition and water, recharging springs, wells and streams. Forests also teach us enoughness. As the principle of equity, enjoying the gift of nature without exploitation and accumulation. The diversity, harmony and self-sustaining nature of the forest formed the organizational principles guiding Indian civilization, the Aranya Samskriti, roughly translate as the culture of the forest, was not a condition of primitiveness but one of conscious choice. My own biological life and ecological journey started in the forest of the Himalaya. My father was a forest conservator and my mother chose to be a farmer after becoming a refugee following the tragic petition of India in 1947. It is through the Himalayan forest and ecosystems that most of my learning of the ecology took place. The lessons I learned about diversity in the Himalayan forest have been transferred to the protection of biodiversity on our farms. Navdaya, the movement for biodiversity, conservation and organic farming that I started in 1997, has saved seeds through creating community seed banks and it has helped farmers make the transition from fossil fuel and chemical-based monocultures to biodiverse ecological systems nourished by the sun and the soil. Biodiversity has been my teacher of abundance and freedom, of cooperation and mutual giving. But the Chipko movement in the 1970s was not India's first. In an earlier Chipko, in 1730, in Rajasthan, 363 people sacrificed their lives to protect their sacred Kedri tree. The Kedri stands as a sentinel in a desert landscape of Rajasthan, as its poem. It is vital to sustainability in a desert ecosystem, as a source of fuel, firewood and organic fertilizer. Its fruit, Sangri, in, is rich in protein and is used to prepare pickles and vegetables. The shade of the Kedri conserves moisture in the soil and offers protection from the scorching sun to humans and animals. The Keji was declared a sacred tree, Jemholji, a saint who founded the Bushni faith. Bushni means 29 and the faith is based on 29 rules of compassion and conservation. During a discourse to one of its disciples, Jemholji said, Do not fell a green tree. This is a charter for everyone. Be always ready to save trees. This is the duty of everyone. 
For over two centuries, people living in accordance with these tenets created flourishing groves of trees and protected wildlife in the Rajasthan desert. One such Bushni village was Kajali, which is situated 20 kilometers south of Jodhpur, Jodhpur. When the king's palace was being built, a court official, Gadar Das, was made responsible for procuring firewood to burn the limestone required to make the lime. A group arrived at the house of Amrita Devi at home with her three young daughters, Asul Bay, Ratni Bay, Bagnid Bay. Amrita Devi was a giant kedri growing in her doorstep. When the king's men started to cut the tree, she tried to stop them, saying the cutting of this tree is against my, her religion. She said she would rather sacrifice her life than sacrifice the tree. She offered her head and the axemen cut it off. Her daughters followed. They too off were beheaded. The news spread like wildfire and Boshnis from 84 villages gathered in Kedrali to join the stream of volunteers to protect the trees. 363 people sacrificed their lives and the sacred Kedri tree were saved. When the king of Jodhpur heard about this sacrifice, he immediately issued a royal decree making the cutting of green trees and the hunting of animals within the revenue boundaries of Boshnoi village villages a crime. To this day, the Bushnois take people to court for killing their sacred species. The Kedri, the Black Duck and the Great Indian Bustard. As Rajasthan is a fragile desert, ecological survival is being possible because of the conservation ethics built into everyday rules for the protection of life. The forest thus nurtured in ecological cultivation, uh, ecological civilization in the most fundamental sense of harmony with nature. Such knowledge that came from the participation in the life of the forest was not just the substance of the Aranyakas of forest texts, but also of everyday belief of tribal and peasant society. The ongoing struggle of Dongria Kondi in Odisha to save their sacred mountain, the Yamgiri, from mining for bauxite is part of this ancient tradition. Today, as the ecological crisis deepens with forest fires in the Arctic, floods in the desert of Ladakh and in China and Pakistan, we find renewed inspiration and a vision for the future from worldviews that see nature as alive and as the very basis of human life. We can thank Amrita Devi, the 363 Dishnois, who sacrificed their lives so that the trees, the earth and we may live. The world we have created is a product of our thinking. We cannot be changed without changing our thinking. Albert Einstein The mechanical mind measures, predicts and approaches not knowing, but cannot actually know because knowledge, by its very nature, is pluralistic. Privileging one system over all others and elevating reductionism is the only legitimate model of knowledge leads to violence against science itself. This epistemic violence is now being combined with the violence of corporate interests to viciously attack all scientific traditions, including those that have evolved from within Western science and have through autopoetic epistemic evolution transcended the limiting mechanistic worldview. Science as knowledge is being attacked so that corporate science, based on alternative facts and post-truth and spun by the PR machine of big money and corrupted governments, can be used as a colonizing tool. And don't we see that today? The mechanical mind is also a militarized mind. 
It is based on violence and leads to violence. It is ontological violence because it declares nature is dead. It is epistemically violent because it destroys our capacity to think and act as part of a nature, to be co-creators and non-violent. It is ecologically violent because through the, its ignorance, it disrupts processes that maintain the life of organisms, ecosystems and the health and the earth itself. It is socially violent because it is blind to and outlaws the embodied knowledge of women, peasants and indigenous cultures that the world so deeply needs today to heal the planet and society. The mechanical mind is a privatized mind. It contributes to enclosures of nature, nature's commons, social commons, and the knowledge commons promoting biopiracy. While appropriating pirating and painting traditional knowledge, it simultaneously constructs an artificial wall of or creation boundary. Traditional knowledge is presented as innovation and invention and privatized by painting. The mechanical mind locks causality into straitjacket of linear mechanical cause and effect, the action limited to contact. However, in living systems, causality is systemic and properties and behaviours depend on context, on relationship, on complexity. It is four-dimensional causality and integrated non-separability of living processes in space and time. Linear causality, on the other hand, allows claims to be made linking specific tools to complex multi-causal phenomenon. In the Green Revolution narrative, Norman Bullock's miracle door sweets bred with chemicals increased food production in India. But as our studies show, an increase in the output of rice and wheat can be accounted for by increasing the area under production and improving irrigation. So land and water contributed to higher production, but this was falsely associated with new seeds and chemicals. Linear causality, when applied to complex system, allows corporations producing harmful chemicals and GMOs to deny the harmful impacts of their product by falsely reducing complex interactive living processes to one cause, one effect. The mechanical mind creates a false causality. This is how safety, safety issues are manipulated and hazards are denied. This is also how systems effective, effectiveness and paradigms based on system science are ignored and denied. The mechanical mind conveniently externalizes costs to society and nature through its linear constructed narrative of conquest, mastery and progress. It separates cause as the system of structural violence from the effect of violence and harm to the nature and people. In the process, it creates a system where the powerful who shape and use the mechanical tools for control appropriate absolute rights with absolute irresponsibility. We're witnessing not just the merger of giant corporations, which have the roots in toxic cartel of the world wars, but a convergence of sectors in one unbroken continuum and consolidation of, of destruction and violent power, from biotechnology and agriculture to information technology and financial technologies. The coercion used against the diversity of indigenous cultures and their knowledge throughout colonial history is now being directed at citizens worldwide. The intelligence of nature and people is being replaced by intelligence as surveillance, whether surveillance by Monsanto over farmers to prevent them from saving seeds, or surveillance by Facebook and Google over our everyday lives, or the surveillance of the corporate state over citizens seeking freedom. The latest endeavour of the mechanical mind is to reduce the world to fragments of information broken down further into data. Data are being traded as new raw material 
and simultaneously being given the status of intelligence. However, data is not knowledge and data processing is not intelligence. Breaking free from the mechanical mind has now become an ecological and political imperative. The duty of care, the courage, the people to stop the harm being caused by the 1% to the earth and its being is part of life and living. Today, not only the old toxic cartel recombining as a new one through mega mergers, it is going beyond the convergence of seed, pesticides, chemical fertilizers to farm equipment and information technologies and to climate data, soil data and insurance in a bid to have total control over our daily food. This is a ruthless takeover by violent paradigm of profit at, all, at any cost. And even while science is abused and truth is violated, these war-based corporations use the word science, not the practice, to expand their toxic empire on the basis of public relations spin that without poison and toxic cartel, the world will starve. A failed strategy continues to be offered to the future because it's, it is the central to the linear narrative of progress and control and of technology as defined by the 1%. This is the basis of their imposing false narratives of being creators and carrying out the civilization mission of our times. Making profits through increased risk and vulnerability in times of ecological and social collapse. This is also the basis of claiming patents on life, with the 1% masquerading as inventors and creators. For them, patents, revenue collections and monopolies are the end game. Information technology and biotechnology are integrating in the new green gold rush, with Bill Gates and Monsanto in the lead. IT is being used to mine genetic data and claiming patents on plants that neither Gates nor Monsanto created and about which they have no knowledge. They only have data. The climate crisis, to which industrialized fossil fuel-based agriculture contributes 50%, is now being used by Gates to launch new rogue ventures for geoengineering. Monsanto is using technology to pirate climate-resilient seeds that farmers have bred to turn climate data and soil data into new commodities for new monopolies and link them to insurance. The company sees a th 3 trillion market in agriculture with a convergence of data, insurance, seeds and chemicals. Owning our seeds through seed freedom, our own food through food freedom, our own minds and in intelligence through intelligent freedom or intellectual freedom, our own economies through freedom to produce and consume ecologically and locally is a barbarianism that the 1% would like to extinguish. These are the freedoms that I and the diverse movement, social movements are committed to defending. The new robber barons and the digital empire. Bill Gates is the modern day Columbus. His empire is the continuation colonialization 500 years after first colonization. Columbus needed the Pope, a king, and a queen for the conquest of non-European, non-Christian societies based on a civilizing mission that would ensure the Catholic faith and the Christian religion to be ex exalted and be everywhere increased and spread, that the health of soils be cared for and that barbarous nations be overthrown and brought to the faith itself. Today, the civilizing mission of imposing the Christian religion on non-Christian cultures has given way to the civilizing mission of forcing GMOs and digital dictatorship on small farmers and tiny businesses across the world. Bill Gates is the Pope of his religion and the worship and imposition of genetic engineering and digital tools. Those who live in pluralistic worlds of biodiversity and diverse agriculture, diverse economies, diverse technologies, diverse languages, diverse inter 
intelligences are the new digital barbarians who must be civilized and brought into the empire of the 1%. So I think we see that today. Now there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in this book. Also talks about different companies and and uh, offshore bank accounts or offshore subsidiaries I should say. So there's like uh, I think some of the leading uh, this is from oxfamamerica.org top 50 US companies stash 16 trillion offshore. So I think if you go through to look you got uh, some of the leading ones Goldman Sachs with 987 offshore tax haven subsidiaries. Then you got JP Morgan Chase. You also got Citigroup, all the banks, Cisco Systems. You also got Merck, Pfizer with 181. So there's uh, a lot more. Let's jump along to so the Monsanto Tribunal and General Assembly that w- was organized in October 2016 in The Hague brought witnesses from across the world on the one platform to share evidence of Monsanto's crimes against nature and humanity on record. So this was an example of Earth democracy in practice. And while we resist the untruth, the violent, we are also sowing seeds of hope and freedom. Very nice. So the Earth provides enough for everyone's needs, but not for the few people's greed. Today we need to recognize that the Earth provides enough for all beings and their future evolution. Extinction looks inevitable only in the world view driven by greed, by hubris, by the mechanical, militarized intelligence based on conquest. To assume that flying to Mars is equal to creating life there is a leap of hubris and of arrogance, ignorance and indifference. Both Hawking and Musk seem to have ignored the fact that the Earth is self-organized, a living planet which creates the conditions for its life and all the species that have evolved on it. That the earth and every living being, the tiniest cells, has the capacity to heal, renew, regenerate. Hope comes from this potential, from the fact that we share the planet with millions of species. It is irresponsible, immoral and unethical to think that we can continue to trash the planet and escape to another one, even if we were to become technologically feasible to do so. So the business grabbing of the money money making through the violent extraction economy that the 1% are built is burdening the earth and humanity with unbearable and non-sustainable costs and has brought us to the brink of extinction. We do not have to escape the earth. We have to escape from the illusions that enslave our minds and make extinction look inevitable. We are living through the latest phase of the epic struggle that has shaped human history through the ages between the power of domination and destruction, mastery, ownership and the non-violent power of co-creation, cooperation, co-evolution. The power of violence and destruction comes from the separation from nature and from each other. A non-violent power comes from the interconnectedness and oneness. This is why seed by seed, farmer by farmer, plate by plate, we are sowing an alternative based on intelligence, science, responsibility and awareness, care and compassion. And in the process, more species are flourishing, there is more food, more rejuvenation and our biodiversity, our soil and our water. The potential for a healthier planet and society with more knowledge and among more people and on earth demo- and on earth democracy based on intelligence of the life evolving is before us and it is real it heralds the resurgence of the real alright guys that's just a few few sections of the book there's a lot more in there than that so oneness versus the 1% shattering illusions seeding freedom then dana shiva i think it's a good book to buy and share it around but also go on um, youtube and have a look at a few presentations uh, from a few conferences have a think about what your contribution is in society and how you can go about reducing that every week, every month. Alrighty, that's it for another episode. 
See you in the next one.